Good morning. morning. Hi, yes. We'll let the kids uh, make their way out. Um, My name, again, my name is Brent Complin, and I'm on staff here. I'm actually our church planting resident pastor, uh, which means at some point, you know, Andrew talked about this last week, we're looking at planting a church out of Solano, and I want to, again, plant that seed in your mind because uh, we're excited to be a church that wants to multiply. And we want to multiply on all levels. That means we want to multiply leaders within the church, but we also want to multiply churches around the Bay Area because the best way for us to reach new people with the gospel is going to be planting churches in different uh, regions and areas of our, of our, of our, uh, our sphere of influence here. So uh, again, that's something that, that may be on the horizon. So um, I wanted to share that as we open here. But we are continuing our series, Prayer Unleashed. And this week we're talking about struggling with God in prayer, struggling with God. And the text we're looking at this week is Psalm 13. If you have a Bible, open up to Psalm 13. If you need one, raise your hand. We have Bibles to pass out. We just got a whole new case of them this week at the office, so we've got plenty. If you want a Bible, if you need one, raise your hand. Um, We'll be passing them around. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep this one. You don't have to give it back to us. You're welcome to keep it. So in Psalm 13, we're going to be looking at a passage that was written by David. And David, uh, I want to give you a little bit of background on who David is and kind of the context within which he wrote this psalm, and it'll give us a little bit of indication of what he's writing. Now, David uh, was the second king of Israel, and in the midst of the time that he wrote this psalm, the first king of Israel, Saul, who God had chosen to lead God's people, he uh, had disobeyed God in a pretty... Uh, powerful way. He disobeyed God and God said, okay, I'm changing my mind. You're not going to be the king anymore. I'm going to select David. And now Saul was still actually the king. He's still installed as the king. And so uh, Saul finds out that David is the guy that's going to replace him and he's not real happy about it. So David goes on the run and Saul's trying to catch him. David's out in the wilderness, in the desert, and in the midst of being, his life being in peril and of running away from Saul he feels like this questioning of, God, why are you doing this to me? You know, I didn't necessarily choose this, but I'm in this position now where I'm in danger. Or I'm in this position now where uh, I, I don't know what to do anymore. And he's struggling with God through the midst of this. So that's the context we find ourselves in when we read this passage. So in Psalm 13, we're actually going to look at this in three different parts. There's three responses that David has in this psalm. And we're going to look at these three responses of how David wrestled with God through his struggles so that we can find help in our struggles. So the first one, David cries out to God with an expression of anguish. We're going to look at the first two verses here. So let's read the text. Psalm 13, verses 1 to 2. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? I'm going to pause there. Even as we start to get into this passage, you see there's a repetition going on already. And I've mentioned this maybe before to you, but one of the ways that we gain meaning and significance in Hebrew poetry is through the repetition. And we see four different things repeated here. David repeats the phrase, how long, Lord, four different times. And I want to look at each one of those things. The first accusation he makes of God is this. How long will you forget me forever? 
Now, this idea of forgetting is not that God has no idea that David's there or that God doesn't, he's just, he, he forgets that David even exists. It's more of an idea of forgetting, like withholding action. And I like to think of it this way. This is something I'm pretty good at. At my house, uh, it's sort of like when you look across the room and you look in the kitchen and you see a pile of dirty dishes. And you think, I don't want to do anything about that. And so you ignore them and you go on with your day and yet they're still there. It's the idea of sort of withholding action. It's not that you don't know the dirty dishes are there. Of course you know they're there. But you're forgetting about them on purpose. You're sort of withholding action and ignoring them. And David's sort of applying this to God and accusing him and saying, God, I know you know I'm here. I mean, you're the one who called me to be your king, or to be the king of, of your people, excuse me. And why are you forgetting me? Why are you withholding action to help me? Now, the second one that he claims, he says at the end of verse 1, how long will you hide your face from me? And this is a, a phrase that we don't necessarily use, but in English we would say something like, why are you turning your back on me? It's a phrase that, that it has these undertones of, of almost a, a little bit of betrayal, of uh, these undertones of removal of presence and approval. Of God, why would you turn your face away from me? That God's very presence is no longer here with me. And, and that's a most devastating thing for David, knowing that he's supposed to be leading God's people. Now the third one, beginning of verse 2, David cries out, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Now if you're using the ESV, I'm using the NIV, if you're using the ESV translation, it actually says, How long must I take counsel in my soul? And that's literally what the words say, take counsel in my soul. And it's the idea of sort of taking an opportunity or, or, or sort of sitting in the muck and the mire of your own thoughts, of just sort of wallowing in your own sort of rationality or trying to grapple with something. It's really an area of, it's got this idea or undertones of sort of darkness of like I, I'm looking into my own soul and grappling with the struggle that I have. And I don't know if you've experienced this, but I, I did a number, of, a couple years ago, one example. Uh, when my wife and I were moving to Chicago to go to uh, move out there for graduate school, I had all of our stuff packed up in a U-Haul trailer, and I had a 1989 Ford F-150 that I had fixed up, I bought it, I did a whole bunch of work on it. I mean, there was one point where a whole bunch of it's just in pieces on the driveway, and I, I cleaned this whole thing up, I fixed it, and I thought, okay, now we're all set to go. Strapped my trailer to it, got my stuff all in there, my whole life's all packed away in this car. Sarah and I get in the car after sort of an emotional goodbye with family, and we get about 50 miles from home. We didn't even get out of the Bay Area, and my truck breaks down. We had to get it towed back home. And we unloaded everything the next morning at like five, 5 in the morning because that's the only time I could get help because everybody had to go to work. So my father-in-law graciously came and my brother-in-law and, and my dad and we, we, we rented another box truck and I just left the F-150 here, returned the trailer uh, and, and sort of got on our way and we made it safely. But over the course of the next few months, I would struggle with this because I'm the type of person who's pretty calculated in my, in my planning and preparation. And I thought I had all my bases covered. And I thought, okay, I'm good to go. I got my truck all cleaned up. It's all great. I got it mechanically ready to go. And here we are 50 miles from home and it breaks down. And I felt in some way that I had failed. I felt in some way that I had miscalculated. 
Now, of course, you know it's a truck, like it's a car. Something can break down that you don't foresee. But in the midst of that, those next few months, it would keep me awake at night. I'd be laying there in bed late at night thinking to myself, man, I should have done this or I should have done that. You know, I couldn't foresee this. You know, how come I didn't, how come I didn't prevent this problem from happening? And I felt like it was almost a reflection on my character or like people in my life are going to look at me and say, hey, how come you didn't fix that? And it's totally, it's, it's me wrestling with my own thoughts, taking counsel in my own soul. I was sitting there and sort of wallowing in my, in my, uh, in my self-pity and, and looking at myself with my pride and saying, this is some way a reflection on me, and I know it's not. Maybe you've had an experience like that where you take counsel in your own soul. Now, the fourth one, the fourth accusation that David makes at the end of verse 2, he says, How long will my enemy triumph over me? Now, this is, David really feels like there's some injustice going on, I think. Because he's looking at the situation and he's saying, God, you put me here. I didn't choose this, necessarily. And so he's feeling defeated, like justice isn't being served, like God is not present, that he's hidden his face from him. Now, I want to just take a moment to acknowledge that this can be how we feel frequently, that this is hard, trying to struggle with where God places us sometimes, of where we are in life. You see, this phrase, like, how long of crying out to God, it can apply to a number of different situations. Often it applies, maybe this is something that's, that's very immediate for some of you, is that it often applies to illnesses, that people cry out in the midst of struggle with illness. And I, I've had some experiences like this in my family, My twin brother, I've shared this before, my twin brother, when we were 12, was diagnosed with bone cancer. And as a 12, 13-year-old, I, over the course of months of watching my brother go through chemotherapy and amputation of his leg and all these different things, and I, I found myself speaking the words of this psalm. My family speaking the words of this psalm. People in our church who knew our situation speaking the words of the psalm and saying, God, how long, how long does he have to suffer? I also experienced this with my grandmother who passed away last year. Uh, She, for the last six years, she had an autoimmune disease that attacked her kidneys and she had to be on dialysis for about six years. And in the midst of that, had a number of other health problems. She had five bypasses in her heart she had a time where she fell and broke her leg and shattered her shoulder. I mean, it's just a, a cascade of difficult, immensely difficult health problems. And even though her faith was strong through it all, and it's something that I look up to, there was this anguish of crying out, how long, God, how long does this have to go on? I personally have felt that longing. A year and a half ago, I struggled with a period of time where I was feeling nauseous and dizzy for an unexplained reason, something to do with stress or anxiety or something. And for the first few weeks, maybe you felt like this, you can sort of get through it on your own will. You can sort of like, I can overpower this one. And then after a few months, and it doesn't go away, and lost a little bit of appetite, I can't focus in school, you just get to a point where you say, God, why? How long? How long does this have to keep going on? Maybe you have, maybe it applies to another situation. Maybe you have someone you know who needs to hear about Christ. 
and they keep refusing to hear, they keep refusing to listen, or you know you have a family member who struggles with addiction, or you have a family member or a friend who has just gone on such an incredibly difficult path with their life that you look at the situation and you go, how long, God? Why? Why does this have to happen? I think it's important that we pause and acknowledge that it really is difficult, that this is a hard part of life in the midst of between Christ's first and second coming when we are in the midst of a broken world. It's hard. Now, the second response of David in this psalm, I want to move on to the next section here. We've looked at how David cries out to God with an expression of anguish. Now, in the next section in verses 3 and 4, David calls out with a prayer for response, an expression of dependence. And this is verses 3 and 4. Let's read the text here. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foe will rejoice when I fall. Now, I want, I want to point out that in this very short period of time, in this one verse, we see almost a, a response or an opposite statements to the first couple verses that we said. Look at the thing that David says. He writes, look on me. That's sort of the opposite of forget. He's asking God to not forget him. Look on me. And then he says, answer. And that's sort of the opposite of the hide your face from me. And then he says, give light to my eyes. And we see that sort of as an opposite of this wrestle with my thoughts in the darkness of my own soul. He's saying, give light, God. I almost sense David in the midst of this. He, he feels like, if you can imagine, like a, a ship out at sea that gets stuck in a storm. That it's just, it, it, the waves are crashing down. You feel like you've lost control and you're just at the mercy of the waves and the rain is pouring in. There's thunder and lightning and you can't see anything. You know, maybe the GPS is broken or something like that. And you're just lost. And David cries out to God, give light to my eyes. Like in the midst of that storm, out in the middle, in the distance, he sees a lighthouse poking through. He says, God, if you don't answer me, the result would be, and my enemies will say, I have overcome him. And my foe will rejoice when I fall. He's saying, God, you don't want that. That would not be it would not be good. So I want to pause uh, before we move on to that third section. I think it's important for us to take a step back and to sort of talk about some of the issues that would be around the struggle with God in prayer. Because sometimes you might feel like there's a dryness when you pray. Like, I don't feel passionate about it. Or maybe you struggle with the persistence in prayer of thinking, I've been praying for this for weeks or for months or for years, and I just don't know how I can pray it anymore. Or maybe you feel like God's not answering when you pray. I think we need to deal with some of these issues. And there's three major, larger categories of things that I want to talk about, major issues here. The first is that we may offer up an inappropriate prayer or request to God. And one example I want to use, there's plenty of scriptural examples of this actually, which is interesting. But one example I want to use is from Mark 10, verses 35 to 38. And it says, it says this, then James and John, the son of, sons of Zebedee, came to him, to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We've got to stop there, because that's quite a statement. Jesus, do whatever I want you, you know, to do. And he goes, okay, so here we go. 
what do you want me to do for you, he asked, which is kind of striking. I don't know if I would have said that to them. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? So he's just saying to them, you guys don't know what you're talking about. They are thinking Jesus is this conquering king who's going who's gonna to wipe out the Roman occupation and reestablish God's people. And really, Jesus is saying, no, I'm pretty sure I know the path I'm going on is going to be my death. I know that. I'm moving in that direction. You don't know what you're asking. Because I don't know if you can follow me down that path. So sometimes, just in this one, a little example, you can see their motives are not right. We're starting to get down into the layers of the question that they're asking. You can even see sort of the, uh, the selfish attitude that they have in that question. Of we want to be your right-hand man. Now, in the context of this, I even find it interesting, I didn't read this part, but these guys, uh, James and John, they actually show up with their mom to ask this question. <laughs> now, if you have to ask a question like of your boss or of somebody you look up to and you have to bring your mom along, it's probably not a good thing. Now, I, <clears throat> I have a personal example of this also. I had a friend in high school. Uh, we were really great friends. We, we just spent a lot of time together and sort of a classic high school thing we got into a little bit of a fight over a girl. And uh, it's not my wife that's here now, but I, you know, I don't want to get into all the details here, but um, this isn't the right time. But we had this sort of fight over a girl, and in the midst of that, I prayed to God, God, would you just change this guy? He doesn't know what he's doing. He's, in my, he's getting in my way. You know, whatever. Maybe you've, maybe you've prayed a prayer like that. Instead of praying, God, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the problem. And this, in this particular instance, that was definitely the case. But maybe you've prayed a prayer like that. Maybe you've come across a situation in your life where you come to God and you say, sort of in an inappropriate way, like, God, it's that person's problem. It's not me. Maybe you're just asking the wrong thing or maybe your motivations are wrong. It's something that we have to think about and check. Now, some of the issues at play with that are, you know, whose glory are you seeking? Are you seeking God's glory or seeking your own? It's a major question we have to ask when when you're praying. You know, you have to ask about your motives. The second sort of category of issues we need to talk about are requests that have poor timing. Requests that have poor timing. Uh, An example of this, my brother and his wife have been married for a couple years, and they've been looking to buy a house down in the South Bay. And they spent months going through the whole process and they walked through with a realtor looking at places and getting approved for loans and all these different things. You all know how it works. And they got to the point of putting offers in and they kept getting rejected. And as, they were, as time was going by, the market's starting to swing up a little bit. And after a little while, now they can't afford to buy a home. And so they're sort of in this struggle. They're thinking, well, you know, maybe this isn't the right timing for it. Maybe God doesn't want us to do this. And so even though it can be a good thing, like it's not necessarily bad to own a home, of course, but in the midst of that, God's not saying, no, you can't do it. Maybe he is, but maybe he's saying to them, not yet. And that's an appropriate response from God at times, is the not yet answer. And a couple reasons why God may do this. We need to trust God because, as you'll see on the screen here, he may delay in order to test our faith. 
That's one of the reasons why he may delay. He may say, not yet, in order to test her faith. He may delay so that we can modify our request in some way. Maybe your request is sort of off base a little bit, and God says, no, 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 slow down. Slow down. I want you to, I want you to tweak that one a little bit, because it's just it's not quite right. Maybe he'll delay to develop character in us. Maybe the delay in response is a, is a way for us to check our motives. It's a way for us to look at what we're really requesting or to look at whether we're really trusting in God fully. It's a way to develop character. Now the third area that I want to talk about is the idea of removing barriers, that maybe there's something wrong with us. And this, there's a lot of different elements that are at play here, but I want to walk through a couple biblical texts that help to illuminate this. The first thing that could be a problem with us is maybe we don't even ask God. One of the verses that's really important for this is from James 4.2. It says, it says this, You do not have because you do not ask God. You don't have because you don't even ask. You see, the most common cause of unanswered prayer is prayerlessness. The most common cause of unanswered prayer is prayerlessness. How many times, I've done this, how many times have you said to someone on a Sunday morning or you meet them for coffee or whatever and you say, I'll pray for you about that. And then you go for a week or two and you don't offer up one prayer. It's just something you say, right? You see, I hope you're convicted by that because it's convicting me just thinking about that and thinking about bringing that up and saying that to you because there's so many times I've done that where you say to someone, sure, I'll be praying for you about that. And whether you don't write it down or you forget or whatever, you just don't do it. The second thing uh, that could be wrong with us is maybe there's some unconfessed sin that could be a barrier to God. Isaiah 59, 1-2 is a real important one for this. It says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. I find it interesting that just the, the metaphors that are used there, that surely God's arm is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. It's not that God can't hear you. He's not deaf. Maybe you feel like that sometimes. I've been praying, and if maybe I just pray louder. If I find somebody else who's maybe you know, a better person than me who could pray or whatever, you feel like maybe God would hear you. Now, in this text, I realize this is also before Christ. So there is a certain sense that our iniquities have, that have separated us from God have been done and dealt with as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. But there's a sense in Scripture, if we... Look at the next text from Psalm 66, 18. This also says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And there's a sense in Scripture that holding on to sin, as Scripture says, cherishing it in your heart, whether it's maybe something you're doing consciously or subconsciously, there's something that you're hanging on to can be a barrier between you and God in prayer. That there's something you're saying, I'm not willing to give that one up. I can keep it swept under the rug and nobody will really notice. You know, I don't have to deal with that in public. And the reality is it can be a barrier in prayer. The third one, there could be unresolved relational conflict. Unresolved relational conflict. Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says a lot about this. It says, therefore, if you are... 
if you, have an offer, or if you offer your gift at the altar and remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Pretty clear, that text. If you have something you want to give, if you have a prayer, if you have something that you're giving to God in worship, the unresolved conflict between people is a barrier between you. And God says, don't even come. Just go and solve those things and then come to me. Now, I realize you might be thinking, well, that's not always completely possible. Because maybe I've done everything I can and the person I'm trying to reconcile with just isn't working with me here. The scripture also says, Romans 12, 18, it's, if, it is, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So there's a certain extent where there's grace there for unresolved conflict. But to come to worship or to come to pray, harboring this relational conflict and not dealing with it can be a barrier between you and God. Now, one specific element I want to highlight really briefly is that marital conflict is an especially heavy one. Scripture says that actually marital conflict and not having appropriate not appropriately dealing with those things can actually, it says in the text, hinder your prayers in 1 Peter. That this can hinder your prayers. It's pretty, speci- it's pretty specific about the connection between the, the, the relational conflict and, and struggle with God in prayer. Now the fourth one, I want to keep moving here. The fourth one is selfishness. This one should apply to all of us in some degree. Okay? Now, think about the prayers that you pray. I wonder if we don't realize sometimes how selfish our prayers really are sometimes. Now, my wife used to work at Google's headquarters in Mountain View. She was a chef there. And I used to go and eat at the cafe occasionally because she could sort of sneak me in the back door and I could get some food. Uh, You know, poor students, it was my way of getting some free food. So I would go occasionally. And one time I went into one of the main lobbies at Google's headquarters. I don't know if they still do this, this is about four years ago, but I walked into the main lobby and there, uh, up in the lobby above the desk is this big screen. It's, it's about this big, maybe a little smaller. And they have a projector and it's scrolling these one sentence lines down the page. And I'm like, what are those? And after a few minutes of looking at it, I realized those are search terms people are entering on Google's website. And they're live streaming in the lobby at Google. And I'm thinking, goodness gracious, and after a few minutes of looking at it, I can tell you there's a few of them I wish I didn't see what they were searching for. But can you imagine the prayers that you pray scrolling down the screen in the, in the lobby at Google? Could you look there and objectively and say, goodness, I am praying pretty selfishly. I don't know if I would want to do that. It would freak me out. There's some things I pray in private that I would probably look at it objectively in the light of day and think, wow, I'm off base. I'm off base with that one. So James 4.3, the next verse of one of these texts we already looked at, it says this, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You ask with a selfish heart that you want to spend what you get on yourself. It's something we need to consider, the selfishness in prayer that could be a barrier. Now, the fifth one, the last one here, is an uncaring attitude. Proverbs 21.13 says this, If you close your ear to the cry of the poor, you will cry out and not be heard. 
If you close your ear to the cry of the poor, you will cry out and not be heard. The idea is we can come at prayer and our relationship with God and our relationship to others with an uncaring attitude, with an attitude that is totally off base from what God really desires of us to care for people in need. It's a theme that is so rich in Scripture that I could do a whole series of sermons on caring for people in need. And God says, if you close your eyes to the people who are in need, if you close your ears to people who are in need, you will cry out and not be heard. That's a striking, striking thing to hear. Now, I want to wrap up this sort of aside in our, in our look at the text here with uh, an encouragement because I want to make sure that we understand that wrestling with God seems to be the norm in Scripture. That struggling with God in prayer is the norm of what we see of the major biblical characters as we walk through the Bible. That it's not the polished, nice prayers that sometimes we pray in our corporate gatherings or we pray when we get together in the back or during our, 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 our home groups or whatever. Think about a couple of these examples. Abraham struggled with God when Sarah didn't bear him a son, according to the promise God gave. He's struggling with God to deal with the trust and faith in God's promise. Jacob had his name actually changed to Israel, which literally means he struggles with God. So, I mean, that's pretty clear. Here's someone who struggles with God. Moses struggled with God over his calling at the burning bush. He says, it's not me. You got the wrong guy. I can't talk in public. I've killed someone. I can't go back there. And he struggles with God in prayer, and he wrestles with him. David, we already look at an example of David here in Psalm 13, but read many other psalms that he wrote. He struggles with God all the time. I think about the prophets as well, the Isaiah and Jeremiah and the others who struggle with God when they have to bring a message of judgment on God's people, and they say, do I have to say this to them? Are you sure? And they bring the message of judgment or a message of salvation, and in the midst of that, they're saying and struggling with God over the gravity and the weight of those things. Think about Jesus in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the, the night before he was, he was crucified, where he says to God, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass before me. If there's another way to save these people, let's do it. But he says, but your will be done, God. And he goes to the cross. I think of Paul who struggled with the thorn in his flesh, there's a text in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where he talks about struggling with God and praying for this thorn in his flesh to be taken away. He prayed three times and God didn't take it away. And so then Paul gets to the point of saying, you know what, your grace is sufficient for me in the midst of my weakness. And he struggles with God in that. What I want you to hear this morning is that you're not alone. You're not alone in struggling with God. In crying out as David did, how long, O Lord, why does this have to keep going on? The scriptures make it clear you are not alone in the struggle with God, in prayer. Let's go back to our text of Psalm 13. In Psalm 13, verses, the last two verses, verses 5 and 6, we're going to see that David responds with trust. He responds with trust in God. And in God's love. Let's read 
verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Or the ESV says, he has dealt bountifully with me. It's an interesting way of putting it also. But I want you to see in this verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. That's a word that is used over and over again in Scripture, over and over again in the Old Testament. It's it's God's chesed. It's God's unfailing covenant love that's displayed powerfully throughout the Old Testament and displayed most powerfully in God's sending of His Son. And David says in the midst of this, calling out, How long, O Lord? Look on me and answer. He's struggling with God, and yet he gets to a point where he says, You know what? But... I trust in your unfailing love. No matter what, I trust in your unfailing love. And he expresses it in two ways. Look at the text. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing, to, I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. He says, my heart rejoices. I'm going to sing. I'm going to have this outward expression of my trust in God, even in the midst of this terrible struggle that I'm going through. I had an opportunity uh, last Sunday to pray for a family uh, who's struggling with a really intense uh, illness in the family. Um, The son is going through a a pretty troubling time for the last number of years, been struggling with an illness. And in the midst of our prayer, as we're praying powerfully for healing, as we're crying out, God, how long? And we're praying, Lord, heal this person. I can't help but get to a point eventually in those prayers of calling out to God and saying, how long, God, heal him. That we get to a point of saying, you know what, God? No matter what, you heal him or you don't. We trust in you for salvation. That we trust in you, that you sent your son to die for us. And the only reason I'm here asking you is because your son made the relationship between you and me right. That he reconciled me to you and bought me back from the grave. You have to get to that point of trust in God and His unfailing love. I want to look at a text uh, from Romans chapter 5. If you want to flip there, you can. Romans 5, 1 to 5. I think I have it up on the screen so you don't have to. Romans 5, 1 to 5 really gives us a picture, a fuller picture of this trust in God for salvation especially in light of us being after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. It says this, Romans 5, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This text makes clear that we have a new standing before God. That our relationship has been changed. That through faith in Christ, through the blood that He shed, to reconcile us, that we have, a, we have gained access by faith into the grace that God offers. 
that his unfailing love, his, his covenant love is displayed in its climax at the cross where Jesus died for us. And we can look on that and have hope in that and not in ourselves. It says in this text, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame. That we can hope in the midst of struggle and trial that we know that this is, although it is difficult and hard, that it is a temporary thing and we look forward to glory in heaven with Christ. That's the picture you need to have, the big picture. Now, I want to even take this a step farther. If you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ, you've never trusted Him, it says that we have access to God by having faith in Jesus, that He has saved us from our sin. If you haven't done that this morning, I challenge you to do that. To pray and to say to God, I can't save myself, I can't do it on my own. I've been crying out, how long do I have to deal with this life? How long do I have to deal with these struggles? How long do I have to wander around? And God offers us light. He gives us light. He answers, he looks on us and answers and gives us light, as the Psalm 13 says, through Christ. If you want to do that this morning, I'd encourage you to come up and pray. We have people who will pray during our time of communion on the sides here up front. Come and share with someone that you want to make that commitment to trust Christ, to save you. They'd be happy to talk to you about it. As we, as we close here, I want us to, to land at this spot. That even in our struggle with God in prayer, we can trust in the Lord for salvation. That we can trust in God. Even in the midst of our struggle with God in prayer, we can trust him. We've seen how David expressed that. I want you to grapple with how you can express that. As we go to a a time of communion, I want to encourage you to use the words of this psalm in your prayer. Maybe you take a few moments before you partake in our communion and you sit and just cry out, God, how long? How long, God, do I have to deal with this? Maybe you look at that prayer bookmark that we handed out and there's something on there that you can look at and you say, God, I've been praying for this for weeks. I've been praying for this for months or years. How long, God, look and answer. But don't stop there. You need to also pray, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. I trust in your unfailing love. I encourage you to do that as we take as we continue our worship through your communion. So I, I just want to encourage you this morning that even in our struggles in God and prayer that we can trust him. Let's pray. Father God, we acknowledge that prayer can be a struggle, that we don't feel the persistence to pray or sometimes we feel it's dry or we feel like you're not answering. Lord God, that is something that is, there's something raw and real about those emotions that we don't have to hide away. It's something that's there, present in Scripture. We've read a passage here of David who struggles with that. We know of other biblical characters who struggle with that, Lord. We know of people in our community here who've struggled with that or are struggling with that. Lord, it's a very real thing. Lord, we acknowledge that you care, that you love us, your, un, your unfailing, never-ending covenant love. 
is here. And you love us, and we can rejoice and sing and pray, even in the midst of those struggles, because you love us. Lord God, just let that truth sink deep into our hearts this morning. Lord God, let us really rejoice and sing as we continue to worship through song. This psalm says, we sing to the Lord because of your salvation, because you've been good to us. Let us just, let us let that be the, uh, the foundation on which we stand this morning. Lord God, just meet us where we are as we struggle with you in prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Every Sunday we come together um, to the table to celebrate communion as um, a body of Christ together, as a church together.